You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past, the podcast that delves into lesser-known histories and explores their relevance to modern issues. This week, it's Crystal and I, and we're at the Extreme History Headquarters, and we're going to give you some new information about the podcast. We're going to talk a little about Women's History Month, which is March, and update you on other aspects of the Extreme History Project. Yes, so Nancy, I have to tell you that to date we have recorded 20 episodes. I was wondering how much yeah. how many there were. <laughs> wow, that's that's a lot more than I thought. So this yeah. is since August or yeah. September. Yep, okay. Yep. So today's the 21st episode. So we've gotten a lot under our belt in the last oh, few months. So We have talked to a lot of very interesting people. We that have. is true. We have. And you know, I myself and I think you as well have really enjoyed doing this podcast and have really enjoyed talking to all the people we've talked to and learning about all the things, the new topics and new subjects that we've delved into in order to talk to all these different people. I know. I sort of feel like we're jumping on the podcast bandwagon, which everyone else is doing too, but this has been really fun. And for me, part of it is having a co-host with you and then selecting all these people we've always wanted to talk to or talk to in more depth about their research. So it has been such a phenomenal experience also having Steve who's able to edit for us. So yeah. we don't Thanks, have Steve. to leave in all those horrible <laughs> bloopers and we don't have to re-listen to ourselves either in order to edit. So that has been huge. But it's been really fun and knowing that uh, your son did the music, your yes. son Lawson, our yep. intro music has been yep. really great. And we've had that since the beginning of the show, which has yeah. been fun. Yeah. 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 Lawson is an aspiring musician and he just loves, he plays the piano, he plays the stand up bass, he plays the drums. He's a one man band. But the piano is his thing. So <laughs> amazing. Yeah. So maybe he'll do some more music for us eventually. We'll have to switch out the front, you know, the lead We might song. want something yeah. a little moodier or right. maybe right. something for our cemetery edition of right. the podcast that hopefully will be coming out maybe this summer. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah, so watch for that. Yeah, we're excited to to talk more about we we really have a love for cemeteries. Um Absolutely. Cemeteries for us are 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 outdoor archives and so we enjoy doing a lot of work in cemeteries and have done. So we thought we would bring that into the podcast as well. Right. So there'll be a separate podcast edition that focuses in on cemeteries. So you know Crystal and I have already talked a bit about death and cemeteries and different yeah. mortuary customs and talked to other people who like hanging out in cemeteries too. But right. um, so for those of you who love that aspect of what we talk about, there'll be a little bit more of a specific podcast focused on that. 
So, yeah. But yeah. Nancy, we have some really big news today. So we do. What is it? We do. Our big news, which we are very excited about, is that we finally have our own logo for this podcast. We have been under the umbrella of the Extreme History Project, which has been wonderful, but we are the dirt on the past. We have our own name. People want to find us. And we decided that we needed to work with a professional to help us get something out there that represented us. So we were fortunate enough to work with Maida Newhouse right here in Montana. She is a professor right now at MSU but has also had her own long career um, out in the real world as a professional who has created logos for people. So this was an interesting experience for us, right? Yeah, it really was. And so um, The Dirt on the Past is a podcast of the Extreme History Project, but we really did want to have a little bit of a different look for this podcast so that people could find it. Um, because we were using the Extreme History logo, which was um, the Extreme History Project. So it was, you know, kind of hard for people to search out the dirt on the past. Right. And this is starting to have um, maybe its own audience, even in some ways, because it it reaches people in a different um, way. Uh, We know we've been getting some people listening from Brazil, from Norway, from other countries, and maybe because of specific topics at different times. So that's been fun. So we uh, tasked Meta with coming up with a image for us for our podcast. And we, we filled out a questionnaire. But what we did not do was actually go look at other podcast logos. And, you know, I don't think I really thought about I like when we went into that, I had no idea what I wanted it to look like either, you know, so we kind of went in blind, but we went in blind, which yeah. was really silly, because you you <laughs> never go and sort of buy or shop for anything or design anything without first seeing all what's out there. Yeah. Right. And we yeah. listen to podcasts all the time. You do, I do. Mm-hmm. And um, we finally realized after our first round that Meta was trying to figure out what we wanted yeah. and that we had better go do some looking around, which we did. And think more deeply about And think more deeply. What, and what we wanted this podcast to be, too. And I think that was a part of it. You know, since we had started the podcast, we kind of hit the ground running, as we do with everything, I guess, we do in our lives. And we had I don't think we had really thought through the end, you know, where we wanted to go with this podcast in the end. And so that was interesting to kind of think through that kind of our long term goals for this podcast, our long term goals for this, right, how it started and where it's going and who our audience is. And um, we started looking and we we found some images that really spoke to us. So we hope when you take a look at it, that you like it and it speaks to you too. We have something that looks like the sun setting over a very stylized version of Stonehenge, but then the shadow from Stonehenge is not just a reflection of those big monoliths. The shadow is actually the shadow of a more historic cityscape. And the idea is that we have prehistoric past, historic past, um, bringing those things together in a way that makes you look at it from a different perspective, perhaps, and, and brings you into a history that you didn't know. Right. That's what I see in it. Yeah. And it kind of speaks to that idea of place. And I think Mm. Nancy and I both, you and I, Nancy, we both um, are so grounded in the history, the archaeology of place that I think that really spoke to us because place means so much to us. And all the work we do is really around people, but people in these places and these, these landscapes that really um, shape the 
the lives of those people. Yeah, and how, how they become meaningful places to people, mm-hmm. how places come to have a name, how they come to be marked, and then how they come to be these historically important and significant places that tell us about our identity and, and who we are as people. Um, so that, I think, is some of what we were hoping to convey, and we were just thrilled with the way it came out. Mm-hmm. So now you can find us more easily as Just the Dirt on the Past. It still says an Extreme History podcast on there, yeah, so we yeah. will always be a part um, of of that and as we spin off a cemetery edition you'll see another logo for that too yeah so yeah that'll be exciting right. so speaking of extreme history as the mothership um yeah. we just had our annual board meeting for extreme history and it's always exciting because we get to revisit what things have happened over the past year and what the plans are for the next year. So Crystal, you always put this together and there's a aspect of going over the financials and the health of the organization, but it has been such a big and strange year with Mm. the pandemic starting and there has had to have been a lot of modifications and changes. So I wondered if um, wondered if you could take us through some of the things that happened or didn't happen. And let's start with one of the aspects of extreme history that so many people know if they live in Bozeman is that extreme history does walking tours throughout the downtown area, throughout the cemetery and other places. And we had big ideas of expanding the types of walking tours we were doing, the topics, um, ones that had to do with breweries and distilleries and all sorts of other wonderful things. So with the pandemic, that possibility um, sort of went away. So what happened for extreme history with walking tours? Yeah, well, you know, um, extreme history, most of the things we do are front facing. So we everything we do is with the public. And so when the pandemic hit, that was tough for us, because we had to kind of reconfigure just about everything we did, um, but especially the walking tours. Uh, and so what we did with those is we uh, we started doing walking tours last year in May, with just groups of 10 people. Everyone had to wear a mask, and we'd make sure that people were spread out during those tours. But I got kind of uncomfortable with that because we had, um, of course, during the pandemic, um, we're here in Bozeman, Montana, which is a is a smaller town, and people from all over the country were wanting to travel, and they felt the safest place to come was Bozeman, Montana, or one of the safer places it, to come was here. It seemed like the, the, <laughs> we had, the country was converging here. Yes, we had exactly. so many people come into town looking for, you know, um, something to do, an escape from the city. To be outside. To be outside, mm-hmm. to go to our Yellowstone National Park, to our state parks. And so um, so we had a lot of interest in the walking tours, but um, I got a little nervous when we'd be on a tour and there'd be, you know, someone from Georgia and someone from Florida and someone from New York and then a few Bozeman people, you know, in there. And everyone had just gotten off a plane coming in <laughs> So, right. And then halfway through, people were starting to take their masks off, and it just got a little worrisome for me. So we we actually, sh- and the numbers here in Bozeman, the COVID numbers were getting pretty high about that time. They started to rise. They yes. started to rise. So I got nervous, and so we decided we shut down the walking tours for most of the rest of the summer. We started doing cemetery tours towards the end again because the cemetery is a place where we can really spread out, and I felt more like that was a, 
a safer place to do chores. And there isn't the noise of the street yeah. and traffic, so people can be a little bit more distant, socially right. distant, and still hear you. So that was probably a little bit easier. Right, okay. yeah. right. So so we started doing some more cemetery tours at the end of um, the summer season last year, and that worked well. Um, but we really didn't have a walking tour season last year, you know, so I really so missed strange. it. I yeah. know, I really missed it. And all our walking tour guides, we didn't have them do tours. Um, so it was just myself and Cheryl Hendry, who works with us, and then um, Jessica jo- Jones. So it was just the three of us doing tours. Just a small crew. Yeah. And what do you think about this coming late spring and summer? What do you think will happen? I think we're going to go forward with tours. Um, we'll probably start similar to last year with ten, groups of 10, but uh, we'll just kind of see how it goes. I mean, it's coming right up. We're in March right now, and so we usually start walking tours in May. So we are, you know, kind of moving forward as we usually do with our walking tour season. We're starting to figure out what tours we want to do. We're seeing what walking tour guides are interested in doing the tours right now and then kind of figuring out um, what that's going to look like. So, But yeah. I feel like it's going to be a more normal. It might not be a completely normal walking right. tour season, but it'll definitely be more normal. Well, more and more people are getting vaccinated yeah. every day, and we, we know more about the different strings, and people are used to wearing masks. So hopefully... Also, given what they're predicting, that most people might have a vaccine or at least enough to reach herd immunity by summer. So hopefully that means your walking tours can be up and running again. That'll be exciting. Yeah. We we sure miss doing them. And we really feel they're an important way to get history to the public, you know, in a really visual way. When you're on the street looking at a building and you're seeing the building, you're feeling what the streetscape is like, you're hearing the train whistle in the background, you know, it's just this. Your imagination really could make it. Yeah. Along the creek as well. That runs right through town and and knowing that, you know, the the Chinese immigrants that lived here were growing crops along there and selling them to people in Bozeman, all of that. That'll be amazing. Well, I hope that that uh, is successful. And and let's talk a little bit about the lecture series, too, because that was uh, planned to go on um, all of last summer and fall. Mm -hmm. And you had to make some changes with that as well. Right. So we went virtual. Mm. We are doing all our lectures on Zoom now. And that actually works really well. You know, how many people attend when you have a Zoom lecture? Because when we normally do the lecture series, it's in the Museum of the Rockies in the, is it the Hayden? uh, Hager Auditorium. Hager Auditorium. And how many does that hold? It holds 200. Okay. And so we, on Zoom, we have the membership level where we can have a hundred people on at a time. Wow. So every of all of our lectures, the last few lectures, we've had about 150 people register and then only a hundred can get in. So the first hundred get in, but we then also record the zoom lectures and we have those on our YouTube page so people can go back and watch them later. And and we do get a lot of watches after the fact. That's wonderful. So, and mm-hmm. and being able to do that through Zoom and knowing so many people. I mean, people have become comfortable with getting their content that way. Yeah. And do you do a question and answer session at the mm-hmm. end on Zoom the way you've been doing yep. it in person? Yep, we do that. So we 
the presenter usually does their their presentation, and then we have about 20 minutes of question and answer. So the last lecture we did was pretty amazing. Um, this um, a woman whose name is Laura Arada has recently written a book on Sarah Bigford. And Sarah was a African-American woman who lived in Montana, in Virginia City, Montana, in the 1860s through the 1930s. She died in 1930 something. And so um, so Laura had written a book about her. And this woman um, lived a pretty extraordinary life because, of course, she was born enslaved, oh, grew up enslaved, yeah. made her way to Montana as a single young woman, and then married um, a, a couple different men. She married one man who was a white man. He was abusive to her, so she divorced him, married okay. another man. And kind of lived her life in her the rest of her whole life in Virginia City. She stayed there. She stayed there. Wow. And she actually operated her husband, her second husband owned a water utility company. So when he died, she took that over. She took over the business. And so she was and She was allowed the business to do that. Owner. That's yep. amazing yep. story. Is she yeah. is she buried in the Sunset Hill Cemetery? She's but buried in the oh, not um, Sunset Hill. Yeah, Sorry. she's buried in the um I'm going to forget the name of the cemetery in Virginia City, but Hill, Hillside, Hillside Cemetery. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So she's under, there. Under a fairly large headstone. So Wow. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So Sarah Bigger, so that was a really popular lecture, and it was wonderful because um, – some of the descendants of Sarah Bigfoot were on the the Zoom presentation. And so at the end, they were talking, uh, um, saying, hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a descendant. I'm the great-great-granddaughter oh, of Sarah Bigfoot. Fantastic. So it was wonderful to have them on the Zoom call and right. or the Zoom presentation as well. And again, this idea that local history is national history is bigger with just this idea that born into slavery from the Civil War, people are ending up in Montana, and they mm -hmm. had very different lives when they got here. And she clearly had some hardships, but was able to make um, a life for herself, a mm -hmm. successful life for herself. Mm -hmm. She must have been a very strong woman. So will you continue doing mm. Zoom lectures? I don't know. That's the question. You know, we have a lot of people who email and say they love the Zoom lectures and that they're more accessible mm. and easier to access. And so I don't know, I, I feel going forward, we might do both. You know, we might do it okay. as an in-person, but then we might also have the Zoom option. option. Okay. So, so the best of both worlds, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. I do like going and seeing a lecture in person, but there are times where you just can't, or there's times where we know we've had to turn people away when mm -hmm. they've come because there hasn't been enough room to get in. So this seems like a, a wonderful option to be able to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. So there's some upsides, right? There's to some upsides. Things that you've learned how to do differently and to still reach an audience. Okay. Yeah. And you know, one of the upsides I think of COVID was that we had to kind of reconfigure how we do everything. And that made us really move forward into some things that we hadn't we were thinking about doing but had just hadn't got there yet and that's this podcast is one of those things you know we had always thought about a podcast and talked about a podcast and then when 
COVID happened, we thought, well, now, you know, let's do it. Now's the time. Let's so, do it. There's yeah. other things that aren't happening and, and let's jump in there with a, with a new plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can't tell you how many things I learned how to fix around my house just because for a <laughs> while I had more time. <laughs> it does feel we are getting back to busier lives again. Yeah. Um, but it's nice then that the podcast, the, the Zoom lectures, yeah, these the things will keep going, um, right. which is wonderful. So also some other things that you all started at Extreme History during um, the shutdown and the pandemic. Uh, One is a book club. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, and before we turn to the book club, I just wanted to ask you who the next person is in the lecture series. Right. So the next person is in April, Carrie Clement, who Carrie was one of our our podcast interviewees. I remember, right. A couple, couple, about a month ago or so. But she is going to talk about what is a country without horses, Robert Yellowtail and horse herd restoration on the Crow Reservation from 1934 to 1944. So that is our lecture, and that is on April 22nd at 6 p.m. So if you want to interact with that. If you want to attend that, just go to the Extreme History Project website, go to our lecture series tab, and you'll find the link to click on to to register for that Zoom presentation. And then you might want to you know, click on about 10 minutes before something to be able to get in. Because like I said, we've been having um, Mm. a lot of people attend those. And so if you want to attend it live. And that's going to be a popular topic, I think, as well. And she's done a lot of research on that, Carrie has. So that'll be a wonderful lecture, I'm sure. Um, Okay, so let's talk about the book club then, which uh, I think you guys have a winning model of pairing books and wine, even though it's virtual. So tell us a little bit about that and how it got started. Right. Well, um, our um, uh, co-worker, Cheryl Hendry, we were, Cheryl and I were talking as after COVID hit, we were kind of figuring out how to redo some of the things or, or get to our audience in a new way. And Cheryl suggested that we do a book club. And we were also concerned at that point, this was in probably March of last year, about a year ago. And we were also concerned about our downtown businesses because, of course, they were all shut down. We were worried about the sustainability of them being shut down through this time. And so we wanted to do something to partner with them to help them during this crisis. And so Cheryl suggested that we do a book club where we buy the books from our local bookstore, Country Bookshelf. Country Bookshelf, wonderful. Yeah. And then we buy wine from our local wine shop, which is called Blend here in Yes, Bozeman. which Cheryl knows very well. Yes. And subsequently, <laughs> I have gotten to know very well yes, also. They're fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> We support them a lot. We do. We are. We are of both uh, uh, the book sh- country bookshelf yes. and blend, and definitely blend. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so we we um, formulated this plan to have a, a book club once a month where we'd get the book from from book country bookshelf, the wine from blend, and then people would pay us, you know, to for both of those. They would things. Venmo you. Venmo us some cash. Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, so we tried it, and it worked. People love it, and so we're still going strong. And uh, but you've left out one important perk. Oh, so how do that? people get their book and their wine? Oh yes, so Cheryl drops it off, and so it's kind of a local thing. Um, 
because we, you know, Cheryl can only drive so far. So, <laughs> so Cheryl um, gathers up the books and the wine, and she does a little delivery system. She has a whole delivery system for everybody, and she drives throughout town. But we do have now we have people who are in Helena who have been. Yes, um, you Helena, were driving Montana. some wine yeah. up to yeah. Helena, I believe, just Which the other is okay. day. Okay, I can yeah, do that, and, right. and we have a a, a book club. Um, participant in Gardner. So we get to take turns going, you know, driving to Gardner um, every other month, which isn't a bad thing. Right. No, it's, I think it's wonderful though. And it adds that real special personal touch, especially when everyone was feeling so disconnected. I think people were more than willing to join and pay and then even donate a bit extra to the organization which is wonderful which is so wonderful and then we meet on zoom right so you actually do a discussion with everybody so you have to limit the number then for that to work so we limit it limit it to about 10 to 15 people and that seems like a good size um and sometimes we'll have more than 10 or 15 15 people sign up so we will do two sessions which um, Cheryl and I both moderate. And we've had, we last year we had our one of our interns help us moderate as well, Maggie. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, so that was great. That is so great. And that, again, is something I'm wondering, would you switch to an in-person book club or will you continue to do it on Zoom? Well, we've been talking about that too. And we've been talking with that about that at book club with the book club participants to see what they would like to do. And, and right now we'll just keep it on zoom, but maybe eventually we'll do it here in the extreme history headquarters. We have kind of a open area, a little living room space, lovely little living room space. Yeah. Yeah, I could see both going parallel to each other. That would be really nice, but we'd still have to keep the wine. (laughs) We can let that go. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. We have to make sure blend is in on this the whole way through. That's great. So, um, so it's been a great thing. And, and, you know, the National Council for Social Studies, I think it was, or the National, it was actually the National Council for Public History, just did a blog about the importance of book clubs and getting history out to the public and how that really does the job. And we've really seen that with our book club. People have been so much more engaged in in history. These people have really engaged with these books and the and the historical aspects of these books. And so, and the more you read them and engage with people, the more knowledge you have to build on. Um, did you have a, a theme in particular with the book club? Well, we did have a theme starting out. We did memoirs last year okay. in 2020, and then our theme for this year is Native American activists and their memoirs and their um, books that they've written. So this month in March, we're reading Sarah Winnemunca by Sally. Um, um, I'm going to butcher this last name, but Zanjani. Okay. And, we'll, yeah. we'll accept that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and apologies and if apologies, we got it wrong. Yes. <laughs> but um, so that's what we're reading um, this month. Next month, we're going to read As Long as the Grass Grows, The Indigenous Fight for Environmental Justice from Colonization to Standing Rock. And so that's, you know, so um, we right. have books kind of along those lines. And last, for this year. last month was a fiction novel, is that right? right? But based on, you know, the idea of a, a true personal story. It was Louise Erdick's book, or I don't know how to say her last name either. I think you said that right. Was it The Night Watchman? The Night Watchman, yeah. And that was a wonderful book. And and people in the book club just loved it, as did I. But it was a a good book about termination, Native American um, reservation termination in the 
very late in the 1950s. So late to that for that to still be happening. Mm-hmm. That's what I find so interesting. Sometimes historical fiction can teach you so much in a way that doesn't feel like you're being lectured at. And right. it's a wonderful way to um, keep those conversations going and make them really relevant. You are listening to The Dirt on the Past with co-hosts Crystal Alegria and Nancy Mahoney on KGVM Bozeman or wherever you find your podcasts. Today, it's just Crystal and I speaking about the Extreme History Project and the podcast series, The Dirt on the Past. You also have plans for in the actual physical building that Extreme History is in, which we'll talk about more in the minute, but you have a room that you've set aside where you're thinking of opening a bookstore. Yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, so we, uh, uh, we're we in this wonderful historical building in downtown Bozeman, Montana, and we have a room that would be perfect for a bookshop. And so during this COVID time, we kind of moved things around in this building and, and started building the bookshop. So it's in process right now. We hope it will be opening as summer comes upon us and people can come in and hopefully... We'll be we'll feel safe enough where people can come in and shop, and it's going to be used in new books that focus on history, archaeology, uh, Native American studies, all those humanities, um, historical fiction, so history adjacent. So nice, all those all those kinds of titles. It'll be lovely for people waiting for walking tours to have that space to browse, or just a quiet room where you can actually even look through these things mm-hmm. to see which ones you might want to. To buy. Well, that's so exciting for extreme history, um, being able to expand that way. Yeah. Meet ever more uh, the, of the, the curiosities of the people who live here and all the, also the people who visit us. Um, so let's turn a little bit to the fact that it is Women's History Month right now, and mm-hmm. we are in a building that was built for women to live in. So we right. know that this building was used historically uh, as a brothel, as a as a home, one of the nicer ones where men would be able to come and visit, where they could get drinks and that they could meet women and um, pay for services. So tell me a little bit about what you've learned about this building since you've moved the headquarters in here. What is it now? Is it almost two years? Almost two years. Yeah, That's so amazing. we've been in this building in the historic part of Bozeman for almost two years. And um, like you said, Nancy, it was built in 1891, and it was built specifically to be a brothel. So that's what it was built for. And about that time in our country's history and in our state's history, we were um, we had, Montana had just become a state in 1889. So this and, is just after. Yeah, yeah. this is just after. Um, we became a state, and the um, state was looking for a new place to have the capital. And Bozeman was in the running for the capital, as well as some other cities here in Montana, Helena and Great Falls and Butte and Anaconda and a few others thrown in there as well. But Bozeman really wanted the capital here in in this place because, of course, with the capital brought all sorts of 
economic value, oh, economic sure. government bonuses. funding and all yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. yeah. And we'd yeah. always been about trying, you know, Bozeman was built with government funding. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, from through, Fort Ellis from, all the way through. From, from Fort Parker, yeah. 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 So so it was built with government contracts. Mm. So we knew that business pretty well. And so we knew that having the capital here would be really important. So they were building a lot of brick buildings at that time and, and kind of beautifying Bozeman, making it look better and bigger and better and more wonderful. And so that's why this building was built. Um, that is just so funny that you say that. So they needed a really a really, really classy brothel. That's kind of what you're saying. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. So they were building they built a beautiful brick hotel um, just right on you the know Bozeman right in hotel, this area, right up the Bozeman on hotel. Okay. Yep. And they they were building a lot of brick buildings along Main Street up, you know, your right, building. Where you, my shop mm-hmm. is in, all the way over on Wilson and yep, Maine. Okay. Yep, they built that building. Um, and so they were just trying to um, kind of um, make Bozeman look a little bit nicer, make yes. it look a little more high class. Yes. And so so this building was built at that time, and it was built by a, um, a man whose name was Joseph Lindley. And Joseph Lindley was a Now, wait a second. A we all know Joseph Lindley because we know the name Lindley, because one of our biggest parks where we have our Sweet Pea Festival is Lindley Park. Right. Yeah, and there are streets with his name. So he's, he's one of these so-called founding fathers. Of, right, right. All right, yeah, tell us a little bit more about that. He was a, you know, he was a real estate guy. He was into real estate. He was into um, buying and selling. And so he, and he knew where the money was going to be made. And so he built this building and and it was a brick building. It still is a brick building. Um, It's now covered with white stucco. So you don't see the brick on the outside, but it is a beautiful two-story brick building. Very solidly built. Very solid. Yes. So he had this built um, specifically to be a brothel so that um, because he knew that that's what was needed if the capital was going to be coming here to Bozeman. So that's so interesting. And is there a reason and there's so many questions I want to ask. And one is, is there a reason he selected this location to build the building? I mean, this yeah. is one we're one block off of Main Street yeah. at the east end sort of of town or, or what would have been. Kind of close to downtown. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Just one block off of downtown. Yes. So so we are um, this. He built this building specifically in this area because this was the red light district. So it had been established as the red light district in the 1880s late 1880s and so uh this was this was the place where they were trying to really put all of the houses of ill repute they were trying to kind of corner all these places into a very restricted district so if there was drinking or gambling or prostitution it was occurring in this area Mm -hmm. so this was sort of a legally designated area where everyone knew this is where this stuff is going on and so it keeps it away from other parts the neighborhoods, of the, okay. right? And this was a national movement. So in the eighteen nineties, late eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, cities across the nation were doing this. They were really um, creating these districts of vice or these 
red light districts is what we call them now. Right. But they were they I were I like districts of vice. Districts yeah. of vice. Yes. I know it sounds know. very right. <laughs> but they were they were putting all the vice and I'm using air quotes now now all the vice into specific places that were close to downtown but easily accessible from the train depot. So okay. you could get off yes. the train and sure. get to them pretty easily or they were right off of Main Street usually. So it's right it's a block off of Main Street very mm-hmm. accessible. And as we know, there is an elementary school <laughs> just sort of diagonally across mm-hmm. um, the main street from here. Were there, was there a school there historically as yeah, well? Yeah. Wow. So, but it wasn't, it was an important um, part of every town. It was a part of every town, which we okay. don't have red light districts anymore. We have kind of the bad parts of town, but we don't have these places that were set up to contain the vice right and they did that because the police liked this because they kind of could manage vice a little bit easier they also did it because the government could regulate these places a little easier as well these they saloons, know where these stuff needs to happen mm-hmm. was going to happen and mm-hmm. i'm sure there were times where they periodically staged some kind of raids or something mm-hmm. where that they could get whatever financial kickback for people who might have um, broken permits or didn't have the right permits they needed, whether it was selling alcohol or something. Right, but, right. but so there was a much more kind of regulated interaction then between yeah. the government and the police and those sort of open vice. So these things were mm-hmm. sort of illegal, but not illegal. Right. Okay. So the, the, the brothels, for example, were semi-legal. So they mm. would, there were ordinances in Bozeman and in other, you know, in all cities throughout the nation, there was ordinances in place saying, you know, these places were not legal, but the ordinances had fines attached to them. So you would be fined if you were in violation of this ordinance, but the fines weren't that large. So okay. for example, here in Montana, the fine for a madam for operating a house of prostitution was $10 a month. Okay. And so a, a madam could easily pay that. That wasn't just a the cost of doing business. Yeah. Then. Okay. And then the, for the ladies who lived in the houses, it was $5 a month. Okay. So you see lists in the newspapers here in Montana and through cities throughout the nation that, you know, where they talk about all these women came in to pay their fines of $10 and $5 each month. So it generates revenue mm-hmm. for the city, mm-hmm. but it's at a, a cost that could be supported by the people engaging in those businesses, shall we right, say, businesses right. of vice. And it, and it seems to me also that if Lindley is building this house, that men are clearly, men of all status, are are visiting these areas and partaking. So mm-hmm. they don't want these things to completely go away. They probably also want them to be nice places to visit. Right. So here he is building one. But I can't help but thinking what his wife thought about it and yeah. how she felt about it and what that conversation was like among and her name the women. is her name is on the deed oh so my it's goodness it's, so she clearly yeah knew or at least someone wanted it to appear that way right yeah well right. how could she not know it's such how a small town know? yeah you know and so and it was a small town at that time and so joseph lindley owned this um with his jointly with his wife her name is on the deed right along with his and she lived about two blocks on the other side of main street so she lived on you know the Fascinating. south side of town and this right. was on the north side of town okay and so she didn't live too far away and i'm sure that the women who worked in this 
in in this house knew her and she probably knew who they were. I'm always curious what that interaction looked like if there ever was an interaction. But there probably had to be some kind as you were walking down the street. You um, can't completely you can't. avoid each other for over years and years of living in this small town. I mean, there's only yeah. so many places to um, get your groceries, get your food, run into people. Right. It is interesting. It seems like all the historic churches are on the south side. There's definitely yeah. a south side, north side yeah, divide in Bozeman. There yeah. is a divide, and there's and that's another reason they wanted to confine these um, places of vice to these restric- restric- restricted districts is because that way there wasn't houses of prostitution popping up in neighborhoods okay. next to women like Rachel Lindley. You know, oh, she didn't yeah. want to, she, she probably was happy to get the proceeds from the revenue from yes. this house. But of course she didn't want a house of prostitution popping up next to her nice, beautiful house over right. on Lindley Street. So the yeah. madam then, she actually rented this house. Yeah, she did not From the yeah. Lindleys, and then later it was sold back to the Story family, or mm-hmm. they took over. Mm-hmm. So so tell us about the madam of this house, or what you know about the one who it was built for, or maybe she was even consulted on how to lay know. out the house and yeah. what it should look like and what should go in it. Yeah. So... Lindley owned this house um, for the first few years, and the woman who was the madam of this house, and uh, you know what that basically means is she managed the house. Is her name was Libby Hayes, and she was the madam of this house from probably around 1900 to 1910, 1912, and so which is a really long time. That's a long time for someone to to stay in one place because usually these women would come and go they would move around a lot because it was a semi-legal business it wasn't completely legal so sometimes um, the sheriff would come in and kind of push everyone out and everyone would leave and go to Butte for you know a a, a few months and then kind of make their way back to Bozeman but Libby really stayed here. Not a lot of job security or (laughs) yeah I mean that must have been challenging for women of all sorts involved at all those levels. And but the Libby's story is very interesting because she came here to Bozeman. Um, she grew up in, she actually grew up in Kentucky and made her way west somehow. I don't really know how, but she shows up here in um, the late 1800s, 18, late 1890s, early 1900s, not by herself, but with her two sisters, Hattie and Maddie. And so it was Hattie, Maddie, and Libby. And the three of them all worked in Bozeman's red light district. And Libby always worked in this house, but her two sisters kind of moved around a little bit into different houses. Okay. And, and in around 1908, 1909, or or so we see Maddie working up in Canada for a time, and then she comes back. And okay. um, so it's you know it's an interesting um, family business in that way, right? These yeah. women mu- must have needed a way to support themselves, and maybe they were able to help each other and support each other in this mm-hmm. in that difficult business. So you said then this house was built in 1891, but mm-hmm. she didn't take over until 1900. Probably 1900. So this building she might had already, been here, but okay, we but don't. The building had already been being used yeah. as a brothel, and and so it was used as a brothel for quite a long time. Then, yeah. if she came in nine years after it was built and was the madam for another ten years, yeah, wow. 
So the the Hayes sisters story is kind of sad, though. Oh. You know, Libby was here for for those years. Um, Hattie worked in a house just across, just right, you know, three houses down for many years. But Hattie died in 1908 of sepsis, which is an oh. in, infection of the the blood, probably from a venereal disease or from sort some you know something that was an, a result of her work. Sure. Oh, when she gosh. died very young, she was only 29 years old. Oh, so, yeah. so Hattie is buried in our local cemetery. And then Libby followed her not too many years later in mm. 1913. Libby died of uterine cancer. Oh, goodness. That's what it says on her death certificate. And, um, of course, you wonder if yeah. that had anything to do also with her line of work. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And Oof. so um, she's buried with Hattie in our in our local cemetery and when Libby died she was only 34 years old so you know this wasn't an easy life and it was very it was very hard and it was you know most women that we've researched who worked in this red light district died very died young yes and died horrible deaths so um, either of overdose drug overdose or suicide or dying from something like syphilis or other diseases that really really rough and Mm -hmm. and you said they're both in our cemetery here yeah so then you ask what happened to the third yes where what happened to her (laughs) so was she still in canada or was that the other one yeah that was no that was maddie she was in canada but she came back when libby died and she took over the property so um right before libby died she actually moved out of this house that we're in okay and bought a a house next door oh so she became a property owner own property owner and was it still a red light district Mm -hmm. at that point okay Mm -hmm. and so so she had her own house and she probably had women working for her in that house and that was in 1912 and then she died in 1913 oh gosh so but she had property then Mm -hmm. what happened to that so maddie came home and took over that property okay and she worked for out of that property until about 1918 and that's when all red light districts across the nation were shut down okay and national story national, so that's just the yeah. way of what everyone was yeah. doing around okay. world war 1 the nation the federal government really did a shutdown crack and, and crackdown and there was a lot of reform movements a lot of movement in that direction for many years and it finally just kind of shut everything down in 1918 1920 so um Maddie, who had been a prostitute her whole life, it's not like she had a lot of other job options to go into at this late stage. So she moved to Casper, Wyoming, and she was working as a crystal ball reader for a time. Oh, goodness. And so she was, we see her in the newspaper. advertising. Fantastic. She reinvented herself. She did. And then she worked, we see her working in restaurants kind of at the end of her life. And she died very, she was in her nineties when she died. Wow. And she, um, died in Casper and she, um, and she died in, I think it was 1962. Goodness, so, she lived a long I know. time. She lived a lot a long of time. change. A lot oh of change. My so goodness. I had the opportunity. I was driving through Casper last summer, and so I stopped to see her grave. And oh. it's actually an unmarked grave. And so she died with very little money. And okay. so she didn't have enough money for a headstone. 
And so probably the end of her life was pretty rough because she didn't have any family. No family. Yeah, Yeah. that's it. Yeah. But probably what she inherited then from Libby might have helped her through to at least have that life. Yeah. 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 And is Libby one of the women who has a very large headstone in our cemetery? You know, her and, and... Hattie are buried together, and it's not a very large headstone, okay. but it's a very beautiful headstone. Nice, yeah, nice. And they weren't segregated in a different part of the nope. cemetery. Nope. That's interesting. So segregated in the red light district in life, but they mm-hmm. were allowed to be buried in the cemetery where everyone else was. Right. Tell us a little bit, but before we um, wind down here, Crystal, if this story of red light districts in Bozeman is this similar to other small towns or other, other, you know, moderate sized towns in Montana. I mean, we know Butte was sort of one of the bigger cities with the mining industry for a while. We have a lot of different places. Helena got the capital, you know, Yeah, yeah. so what have you learned? I know. (laughs) What did you learn? Yeah. Despite our lovely brothel, we did not get the capital. So it wasn't nice enough. It should be a four story brothel. So yeah. What, what was, what were the red light districts like in other Montana towns. They were very similar to the red light district here in Bozeman. Every town, most every town in Montana and through the West and through the nation really had a red light district during this time frame that I'm talking about, which is about the 1890s through the 1920s. Mm. And they all were located about a block off of Main Street, easily accessible by the train. They were often located right next to the um, Chinese, the historic Chinese community. Okay. You know, sure. we think of these Chinatowns. We think of, you know, Chinatown in San Francisco. We think sure. of Chinatown in Butte. Those Chinatowns were, were located right next to So often the red adjacent light to the red light district. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So these places where you would expect, but they're easily accessible from mm-hmm. Main Street downtowns, mm-hmm. from travelers getting off a train. Mm-hmm. So kind of um, almost a template for yeah. where and to put the vice and Right. You know, a community of people perceived as foreign, you know. Yeah. And in the bigger cities, these red light districts were often next to the theater district. So oh, that fascinating. Kind of, you know, sure. Yep. We didn't, in Bozeman, we really didn't have a theater district. district so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in Chicago and in New Orleans and stuff like that. Sure, that yeah. idea of performance. Yeah, right, right. being built into that yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh. So these, you know, it was it was part of our history. And, of course, prostitution never went away. Prostitution, after they shut down the red light districts, prostitution just went into different places. And oftentimes it went into uh, the back rooms of saloons, mm. into these places called assignation houses where you could rent a room for an hour. Mm. And so, for, you know, looking at it through um, historically – you know, and looking at this house that we work out of now, this was would have been a nice place for women to live and for women would have to been work. a nicer setting to have to do that work. Yeah. And how interesting that Libby then came to even own one of that that yeah. that possibility even exists. Very different when we think of later prostitution. When you think of women being on a street corner mm-hmm. and then having a male, a pimp, right, basically governing over her rather than a madam or a woman who is operating a house. Yeah. Very different work conditions. Very different, you know. And here in Bozeman, there weren't any pimps, uh, male pimps. It was women were 
the pimps, you know, I mean, it yeah. was the same thing. Right. Women were still pimping out younger women, right? but it was, um, women who were doing that. But in Butte, there were some, they called them secretaries. And okay. so instead of pimps, they called these men secretaries. <laughs> Interesting. And so there were some male secretaries in Butte hmm. and other places in larger places, but in the smaller towns, women, um, in the West, women kind of ran things themselves. seems hmm. like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And I'm sure just how this fits into just those bigger pictures of, you know, um, what do I want to say, sort of uh, businesses of vice and Mm -hmm. just red light districts or just in general, how that compares with what was going on in coastal cities and other parts of, of the, the country, given that you see these big, broad, sweeping national movements where first you're putting them all in a red light district and then you're cracking down and getting rid of those again. And then yeah. the, the longstanding implications for people who end up in those lines of work for whatever reasons. Yeah. 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 Um, well, fascinating. And I know um, Libby Hayes will always live on in history because right. we will always be here to tell her story and, and have it be a part of this house that you're working out of. And that's fascinating. And, and it is a beautiful space to this day. So I, mm-hmm. I hope that it was at least a nice place to spend time for the women who had to work out of here. Right. I'm sure it was never their first choice of how their life would have ended up. No, I don't think so. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it was. I think it was a, it was um, not a choice, but it was something that they kind of ended up doing because they had to make a living. They had to support themselves. They had to support their children mm. and maybe even support extended families. So, And a lot of them out West had no family support. They ended right. up on their own, even yeah. if they came maybe with someone or for someone, and then that didn't work out. So mm-hmm. Yeah, so these stories just um it's so it's wonderful. It's it's a a little known lesser known story but such an important part of understanding communities in the west. Right. Um so is there anything else we want to touch on before we wind down today's episode? I think that's about it. Yeah, I think that we covered a few things and we have some more interesting interviews coming up in the next few weeks. So um, make sure to keep listening. And uh, it is Women's History Month. And so go out there and learn something about your the women in your life. Go out and learn something about your grandmother, your mother, your aunt, your best friend's mother. You know, I guarantee you'll, you'll find something There's out some that you didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next week, we are going to talk with Jan Zuha, who has been um, a librarian who really helps people with their research, this this amazing um, research things that she gets involved in because she's assisting people and she's had a fascinating life herself. So she's going to be on with us on The Dirt on the Past next week. And we just wanted to say to anyone listening, if you have other ideas of people you know that might you might like to hear us interview um, work that they do that you think is fascinating, but maybe hasn't gotten out there. Go ahead and shoot us an email to info at the extreme history project.org. Do we have the, the or no, just extreme? Okay. So just, let me say that yeah. again. If you have an idea, go ahead and shoot us an email to info at extreme history project.org. And that's all one word. So info at extreme history project. Org. And we would be happy to hear some ideas about, again, people or research that you think we might like to talk about on The Dirt on the Past. 
So we just want to thank everyone out there for listening. And if you can leave us a review, that really helps people find us. And make sure to pass this podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for joining us today. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about The The Dirt dirt on on the the Past. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell please tell your friends and leave us a review. It really helps people find us. We are a new podcast and we are trying to grow our listener base. So please share. Thanks. And thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>